In 2022, Australian hip-hop is thriving. 1-4, Hooligan Hefts, The Kid Leroy, Husky, Chillin' It. We've got artists from all over the country making noise all over the world. Australian producers like FNZ work with Kanye and J. Cole. The Kid Leroy had a track with Justin Bieber. It's a boom period for Australian hip-hop, but it wasn't always like this. For decades, Australian hip-hop existed, quite happily, in the shadows. It was a true underground scene. Major labels had tried to make it work once or twice, but couldn't figure it out. Until 2011, when 360's Falling and Flying changed everything. Falling and Flying introduced Australia to our first ever rap star, 360. The songs introduced the new sound, melodies, electronic music. The album's success changed the way major labels would look at Australian hip-hop, but that same success also changed the way 360 lived his life. In this podcast, we'll talk to the key players involved in 360's Falling and Flying to learn how it happened, how it almost didn't happen, and the way it altered the trajectory of Australian hip-hop. I'm your host, Steve Duck, and this is Classic Material, The Making of Falling and Flying. Presented by G-Shock. Did you remember when when Six used to do his shows, bro, and have people throw fucking coins at his face? <laughs> do you remember that shit? I, I don't remember. That. Throw bro, coins at his face, bro. I need a dollar, bro. You don't remember that? <laughs> That's Mo Atwa. He was 360's manager when all this kicked off. Mo and I go way back, but uh, I don't remember this story. So, man, oh, my God, bro. Remember that I Need a Dollar song? And he'd put his glasses on, bro, stand in the middle of the stage, arms wide open, and tell people, throw coins at me. So I'd have drummers and shit behind him after the show hitting me up going, I can't fucking do this, man. I'm trying to drum and I've got fucking coins being thrown at me and shit. Can we skip that part of the show? And I remember trying to tell Six, like, yo, man, you probably shouldn't do that. You know, you're going to lose an eye or... You know, and he just didn't give a fuck, man. It was all about the entertainment, bro. That's what made people love Six, but in the end, what probably, you know, deteriorated his mental state to a degree as well, that he just went so hard. He gave everyone everything, but that came at a cost. I don't need to take up too much time introducing 360. You know who he is. You heard his songs on the radio. You saw him topless on the cover of Rolling Stone. He's a star. But more than that, he was Australia's first ever rap star. Now you think about that for a minute. We've been producing hip-hop here since the 80s, but the wins since then were small. In the 80s, the biggest thing that happened in local hip-hop was seeing b-boy crews on Countdown and Hey Hey It's Saturday. In the 90s, things picked up momentum as Melbourne's graffiti scene became world famous and local labels started to set up shop. Then, in the early 2000s, the Hilltop Hoods did the impossible and got spins on major radio. It blew our minds. But nothing was like the whirlwind of 360's fame. For years, major labels here couldn't figure out how to turn our local hip-hop scene into something that could cross over. And then 360 hit and he had paparazzi following him down the street in South Melbourne. He didn't just cross over, he dropped an album with seven singles and launched into the stratosphere. Now, 
It was an album that changed the trajectory of Australian hip-hop and set up a future where music videos from Mount Druitt can make waves in London. And a kid from Redfern now makes hits that go number one right around the world. The album was falling and flying. And 10 years after it changed the game, we're going to take a look back and see how it all came together. Like any story, we've got to take this back to the beginning. Melbourne, sometime in the mid-2000s. At the time, Melbourne was a city that stuck to the rules of what Australian hip-hop was. It might have been the city that made the rules. It was the home of the Revolver MC battle, the run amok underage battles, and talent showcases and hip-hop nights everywhere. At that time, there were hip-hop nights in various venues almost every night of the week down here. For a niche scene with no mainstream stars and an attitude that wasn't particularly inclusive, that's pretty remarkable. There was a pipeline of talent from the open mics and the battles to showcases, and if you were good enough, you'd sign with an indie label, you'd put out a few 12s, an EP, maybe a mixtape. At the time, one guy in particular was running a lot of these nights. His name was Nick, but we knew him as Litigate. He hosted nights at the Evelyn in Fitzroy and further out in Brunswick at a place called The Spot. It was a small scene, but he worked hard to curate talent, secure headliners, and find new talent to open week after week after week. And he'd be there every night in a fitted cap and a thrift shop dinner jacket. From the first few times he let 360 jump up on stage to rap, he knew this guy was different. It was when he was starting to kind of get his toes in the battle scene and he was always kind of regarded as a a kind of comedic rapper, like he had mad punchlines and, you know, really kind of brought it in that regard. I sell pictures of celebrities, I'm all about the dollar bills. I call Bob the Builder popping pills with Dr. Phil. Folks say that I need to make an honest meal. That's why I rob and steal to get my pockets filled. But then every now and again he would drop a pretty deep song. It was like, fuck, this dude's got real skills and just the charisma that he had like he dressed like a surfy he was wearing all this surfy shit all the time and he would jump up there and there would be you know sometimes on a Tuesday we'd have 20 people there and they'd be scattered around having some beers whatever and every time 60 got up people had just come to the front of the room he had this real charisma kind of folksy charisma that seemed to really speak to people and resonate at the time and even our um our door girl, uh, Rainy, at the at the spot who became uh, kind of a mainstay. I remember she would just be like enthralled whenever he was rapping and she'd be like right up the front rocking out as well. The goal back then was local fame. Keeping it real. You weren't in it for the money. You were doing it for the love of hip hop. At a time when somehow it wasn't cheesy to say you were doing it for the love of hip hop. But there was a change in the air. The OGs were starting to slow down and a new generation was coming through. The Hilltop Hoods had had huge success. Bliss and Esso were breaking down the door and to the next generation, it felt like anything was possible. It was really interesting, man. It was, um, we had kind of seen success and, and it was a really weird kind of time of ambiguity, both in 
how people viewed and listened to hip-hop, how rappers thought about hip-hop and how India major labels were thinking about hip-hop. So there was the kind of America model of putting out mixtapes and, you know, grinding and getting a major label deal and coming out or else, you know, you kind of didn't make it, inverted commas. Um, that was kind of the view. But then there was this Australian model where obese records literally were kind of, you know, ruling the game for a period of time. I mean, Bliss and Esso's first album was on Obese Records. The Hoods were on Obese Records. It was unbelievable the monopoly they had for a period besides those kind of outliers like Nuff Said and Broken Tooth. But then there were these this upswell of people who didn't quite fit the mould of anything Obese were doing or the kind of um, sound which they were promoting. So it was less of that kind of mid-90s kind of golden era sound and something that was a little more kind of contemporary and a little more probably um, regardless of accent or inflection or anything like that, a little more influenced by what was happening in America. And that's kind of the important thing here. There was change in the air. For so long, Australian hip-hop was staying in that pocket of early to mid-90s American boom-bap rap. And I don't say that disparagingly because Australian hip-hop seemed to be quite happy in that pocket. But as Chris Farrar explains, that sound came about from the tools that we had at our disposal. If you look at the hip-hop that we grew up on from overseas, the, the US stuff particularly, it's made with MPCs and SP12s and stuff like that. And that, that was kind of the aesthetic and that has a certain sound to it. I feel like the music that was being made in Australia in, you know, from kind of the mid to late 90s until about the mid 2000s was, was more being made on computers. So people were skipping the, the MPCs and the SP12s and just going straight to sort of using Fruity Loops and, and things like that. And it, that had a certain sound to it as well. I don't think sound cards were quite there, so there was a certain tinniness to the to the beats. They, they weren't sort of rich and, and lush. Um, I think the vocals were very similar. People were recording in, you know, on SP... Uh, what are they called? SM58s? You know, with, with blankets around the room to deaden the sound and, and that doesn't quite give you a Studio 301 kind of uh, <laughs> sound quality. So, so th- there was certainly a, de- a lo-fi, you know, um, quality to it. But I think at the same time there was a really unique character to it. The DIY vibe of Australian hip-hop gave the local sound its own character and personality but there was a new generation ready to come through and put their own stamp on the scene. So where the previous generation came up listening to Diamond D and Large Professor cutting up dusty samples, the new gen were influenced by the polish of G-Unit and Jay-Z. Slowly, rappers started aspiring to emerge from the underground and be the scene's first star. Major labels were sniffing around. There was a buzz in the air. But nobody from major labels to local rappers could quite figure out how to make that happen. And it did have people who were coming through who were very serious about their craft, very serious about what they were doing. In a bunch of cases, people who rapping was their nine to five, like 60, he, you know, stopped working and he just rapped, you know, 24 seven, recording stuff, recording mixtapes, recording songs. But it was, it was this kind of ambiguity about how to carve that path out. And there was this um, sometimes collective view among the rappers and around among uh, the hip-hop artists who were congregating at some of these nights. Yeah, like the way to do it is we're going to grind it out and get some mixtapes and get a major label deal and then we're going to blow up. But then there were a few people who made really fucking awesome music. Like we had Phrase, uh, you know, who got really invested in by Universal. We had Weapon X and Ken Hell. And they came out and had these great records, really polished, really well manufactured, but they weren't massive commercial successes either. So it was... Um, 
uh, everyone was trying to find their way and kind of feel out how to make it when there was this proven audience there who'd sent the Hilltop Hoods platinum or several times platinum and Bliss and Esso were riding that wave. You know, Lyrical Commission were doing really big numbers for an independent act and some of the others were as well. Um, but it was still trying to feel out what would appeal to an Australian market. Someone who was watching this arms race from the standing room at the Evelyn and the spot was Chris Farrar. He'd relocated from Brisbane to Melbourne and he'd started his own indie label, Soulmate Records. Chris became a mainstay at Melbourne hip-hop nights, such as those hosted by Litigate, and it was immediately obvious to him that it was 360 who could break through to the next level. There was something about the guy that was just quite magnetic. It's a cliche to say that people have an X factor about them, but when you're watching showcase nights of underground hip-hop, you see some flashes of talent, but you don't necessarily see a lot of what they would call X Factor, and 60 definitely had it in spades. We used to get big crowds at the Evelyn, but usually during school holidays, and that's because there were a lot of uh, dubiously of age people there with very, very sketchy IDs that they were using to get in. <laughs> Bunch of like 16 and 17 year olds from local schools who were using these sketchy IDs to get in. So. During the school term, the foot traffic wasn't massive that we get in, it was all rappers. And there was one night in the middle of winter, it was like a fucking cold day, and I could tell that it was gonna be like a super quiet night. And 60 was meant to be headlining. And so we cooked up this whole false story that we put out on the internet on OzHipHop.com that he'd broken his legs in an accident. And uh, I went and rented a wheelchair and he put his legs in like fake plasters and shit. And we had it as a like get well donation gig. And so people showed up and people really showed out with <laughs> donating a bunch of money for his like get well in his get well bucket. And he got up and did half his show in the wheelchair and then to the, uh, to the tune of Zorba the Greek just suddenly rose up out of his wheelchair and kicked off the plasters <laughs> and finished the gig off. So he, uh, he was definitely establishing, nearly everyone took that in the good humour it was uh, intended. But uh, he was doing a bunch, but whenever he and Pez would come down, it would, it would just be fucking packed to the rafters, man. It wasn't just Litigate's nights, though. At the time, mixtape culture was booming in Melbourne, and 360, along with his partner Pez, had landed themselves a spot on what was one of the most popular mixtape series of the time, Weapon X and Ken Hell's Scarnon mixtape series. X and Hell's mixtape featured unreleased tracks from the duo and a handful of freestyles from local rappers. But what set them apart was Ken Hell's alter ego, Take It Easy Heasy, whose flips of popular tracks gave the scan on tapes viral value, before viral value was something people paid attention to. At the time, I was actually looking after online stuff for X and Hell, and I uploaded scan on Volume 1 to some cheap service space I was using for a few projects. After a day or two, the admin called me, fuming. He told me I crashed the whole server. The mixtape was being shared by fans on hip-hop forums and car forums, the social media of the day. There were so many people downloading it that the server crashed and I was being held responsible. When it was time to produce Volume 3, X and Hell recruited 360 and Pez, and the rookies understood the assignment completely. They stole the shine from Dan near every guest on that mixtape. Except Take It Easy Easy. Where it really made me sit back and, and take notice was I heard him on uh, the Weapon X and Ken Hell mixtape, Kick to the Head, and there was a joint on there with 360 and Pez going back and forth. 
I'll be on the stage just walking around And to get my point across, yo, I'll talk to the crowd See, I see a lot of dudes are awfully proud But when it comes to an opinion, yo, they water them down And I... And it just stuck out like a sore thumb in a good way It, it was really brash, it was really in your face It really was a point of difference And it didn't sound like anything else that was coming out of the time And there was a musical quality to it But there was also like a kind of a, a shock value to it and you combine that with the stage presence and you combine that with the charisma and the X factor and, and the recorded music and it just seemed like a, a total package. Because they're older than you, so the evidence proves my destiny never can lose and every possession I kept is a legacy too. What? So I started talking to 60. At that time he was kind of like a package deal with Pez. Um, the two of them were kind of interchangeable and had this group called Forthright, but I'm, I ended up talking to 60 initially and... One thing led to another and we kind of uh, got to talking and at some point he signed on the dotted line and we, uh, we started putting out music together. While the local hip-hop scene began to take notice of his mixtape appearances and live show, 360 was honing his craft, writing, practicing, listening with his close friends and fellow rappers Justice and Chaos and GMC, his manager Mo and other close friends. They would all stay at Mo's house in the western suburbs and it was during this time bonding over art, expression, and narcotics, that the early seeds of falling and flying were planted. Mo explains. Everyone kind of stayed at my house, essentially. So we all lived with our parents because we were all young. But when my parents would go to Egypt, which they would go to Egypt like once every year for like three to six months, pretty much everyone just got a key to the house and came over. Like we set up a studio in the back and... Like the house was full all the time with just music dudes doing music all the time. So that was awesome, man. There's a lot of a lot of photos of us back in the day around my parents' house um, that I hope they never see, to be honest. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, we all lived together, man, in a way. Um, but we all we were always together, dude. Justice, who was an accomplished rapper, an ARIA nominee, and a winner of multiple MC battles all around the world, also remembers this time fondly that period in that time, it was amazing. It was intense, a huge amount of fun. It was probably like from a friendship perspective, probably like one of the happier, better times, at least in my life. We basically just spent every day, just we'd go to work, uh, 60 wouldn't, 60 would just hang out in that house. We'd come back after work. It was kind of like a family. Like we'd just come home and be like, hey, hello, you know, welcome back and stuff. Each night it just like was we would just freestyle, smoke weed, drink, have have a good time. And the weekends is where we'd really kind of hit it hard. Like as in we would do all sorts of stuff. And I think that was for me anyway, that was really the the era to experiment with things like drugs, with things like music. And and those two things for, for us were really interconnected. Getting a little bit lifted, writing some raps, recording some songs and then becoming super, super close. Part of that, you know, could, could have been the weed and the booze and the other drugs, and then, uh, but I think the most, most of it was just kind of this shared affinity for music, for hip hop, and then just like really enjoying being in each other's company. For most of us, we kind of look at that period as like, it was a real highlight. We weren't really trying to impress anyone. We weren't trying to get famous. We weren't trying to do anything like that. We basically just hung out, made a lot of, really good, I think, and really stupid kind of music here and there. And things kind of took off after that for 60, not, not too long after that, after we kind of moved out of there. 
A bunch of dudes hanging around a shared house in the suburbs might not seem like the kind of environment that forges classic albums. But 360 remembers not only the social bonds, but the time spent among his peers learning and refining his skills. It definitely it definitely had a big impact on the type of music because I was experimenting a lot at that time. I've always been trying to evolve and, and grow with how I rap, like with my deliveries and stuff like that and flow patterns and cadence and everything. Graham, uh, GMC was helping me, like telling me how to use my voice differently and not always just shout rap do it more calmly or bounce on a beat more instead of going to my go-to patterns and stuff like that. It was, uh, yeah, amazing time. Dude, I, I can tell you like specifically artists and songs that we listen to, you know, the whole soundtrack to your life thing when like a song comes on now and it takes you back to that exact moment. There are certain songs and artists that when they come on now, I'm like transported back to, Mo's parents' place uh, where we were all hanging out. And so the the artists that come to mind immediately for all of us, Joe Budden was, was a, like it was a massive one for us. It was just like, oh, my God, who's this guy that's just so gritty and raw and authentic? And I think if you listen to a lot of the music that we were making and the raps we were writing then, a lot of it was kind of emulating him. So Joe Budden was a big fixture. Lil Wayne was was massive for us. Um, Royce the 5'9". It was very much from a rap perspective about, hey, what are these people saying? But then on the flip side, we were also starting to like get into more like poppy kind of fun stuff. I know what you're thinking, like Joe Budden, the angry dude, more well known for memes and podcasting than for rapping. But at the time, Joe Budden was a maverick. His stories of addiction and homelessness, self-doubt and fear were truly unique and absolutely influential. But as we heard from Justice, it wasn't all dense lyrics and self-reflection. The group were listening to house music, dubstep, R&B, and pop. It was this convergence of sounds and influences that would go on to inform 60s choices in the months that followed. What's up? This is Steve. I'm your host on Classic Material. I'm having a great time reliving those days in the mid-2000s, a time when I used to hook up a full colour-coordinated outfit. From the Jordans to the fitted cap, the oversized jersey, everything matched. And the finishing touch was always the G-Shock. I had a bunch of different colours to match different sneakers. But the G-Shock isn't some relic from the past. G-Shocks are still as durable as ever, but now they also measure your heart rate, VO2 max and more. You can still sync them with your outfit, but now you can sync them to your phone too. Take a look at the range today at gshock.com.au. So far in this story, we've heard from 360's manager and the indie label that signed him. We've heard about his place in the Melbourne hip-hop scene of the time. But there's one very important piece of the puzzle that we haven't yet discussed. There's no talking about 360 without talking about Pez you'd be lucky to find two people who complement each other like 60 and Pez. On the mic, they were the deadliest one-two punch Australia had ever heard. Outside of the booth, they were ALX, dreamers who recognised the value of dreaming and the importance of putting in the work to get there. But as Pez explains, before music, it all started with a love of basketball. That was kind of both of our first dreams I'd been playing at Melbourne Tigers and all that sort of stuff and was wanting to, like, move up into, like, ABA level. 
so I ended up moving to Ringwood and that's where 60 played. And then we'd sort of just crossed paths a little bit but didn't really know each other all that well. And then we ended up playing some VBL games together and I think we were still mainly just acquaintances but then he had an eye operation and I injured my knee and we ended up both pretty much having to step away from basketball and then he was the only other dude that was into hip-hop so we kind of stayed in touch through that. I think we were both probably, I was definitely this way but innately kind of dreamers like didn't really want to just have to go get a job and do these things so maybe we were procrastinating in that sense a little bit and I just wanted something else to pour all that commitment and energy into so we started to write raps and everyone thought it was hilarious and like Aussie dudes trying to make hip-hop and it was a joke and all that sort of shit but then um yeah it sort of grew from there and and it was just cool to have someone else to share the fun and the vision with and all that sort of shit. And I'm, I kind of convinced him he was doing a apprenticeship to be a chippy and I told him to quit so we could become rappers and shit. And he told his parents that and they, brightly, they probably laughed in his face, but they sort of let him do it, man. So he quit his job and we, we decided we were going to be rappers and shit. So it was pretty um pretty funny time. But once we kind of hit it off, like we sort of clicked, then... We just became like the best of friends for that bit. It was a pretty joyous time to reflect on like two dudes on Centrelink and shit, you know what I mean? All you want to do is write raps in like a bedroom or a basement and you're going out partying like as if you already made it, like in your head, like you're just kind of living in this fairy tale thing in your head, you know, like it was a pretty funny time to reflect on. It was cool to have someone else to to look at that kind of was was dreaming big and wanted to do this stuff. It was kind of cool to just have someone else that we were kind of like, we're in our own little bubble. It was one thing for two guys to connect through a shared love of basketball and hip-hop. But it was the way 60 and Pez connected with a shared ambition that really set their partnership apart. At the time, 360 was living in the basement of his parents' home. His room was a bed, a mic hooked up to a computer, and not much else. But there was one other thing. Years earlier, a book titled The Secret had become a favourite of Oprah Winfrey. The book's philosophy of attracting success through the power of positive thinking was dismissed by some and embraced by others. And people were creating vision boards as something of a daily reminder to focus positive thoughts and work toward their goals. In his days before success, collecting Centrelink payments and working on music, Sixty had a vision board in his bedroom. I asked around to see if anyone remembered what was on his list. Yeah, we were all into that shit, dude. We were all on that spiritual shit. We were all hardcore into the power of now and the Eckhart Tolle books, um, this you know, secret. We are all into that visualisation, good vibes lead to good things. And, man, I tell you, no word of a lie, he believed that shit, bro. He fully had, like, shit up on his wall, like, you know, million-dollar check and... You know, he he literally believed it. Do you remember what was on his list? He had a whole bunch of shit pasted on his wall. There was definitely a check. I don't I don't remember the other stuff, man. Mo's memory is hazy, but Litigate and Chris Farrar offered a few more clues as to what was motivating 360. Yeah, dude, the the vision wall. <laughs> that, that that he had this like fucking ghetto vision wall, like this like real cute, like, coloured cardboard cutout thing with, like, little kind of, like, cutout collage pictures glued up on it. 
I remember seeing the wall in his bedroom and I think at the time, I don't want to put 60 on blast, but I think at the time he had a, a picture of Lara Bingle on his wall and um, that was like his vision board. Like I said, what, what's with Lara Bingle? And he's like... That's 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 going to be my girl someday. I I feel there was definitely like a blonde girl in a swimsuit on there, which could well have been Lara Bingle. I'm I'm not 100 percent sure. It could have been um, Beck Cartwright. Could have been Beck Cartwright. I think it was um, sell 10,000 records, um, sell out. It was the forum? I think it was the forum or somewhere like that. And a couple of other things on there. And I used to, like, really tease him about it. And while absolutely 100% believing him to be capable of doing that, it just sort of seemed absurd. But his belief was paramount that that would lead to that outcome. And fucking sure enough, like, it wasn't in the year that he called it, but the following year, he not only achieved those things, but by, like, treble or quadruple. It was incredible, man. Whether you believe in it or you think it's hocus-pocus, I think this idea of manifesting your reality um, was something that he, he really took to the chest and he, he, you know, just dreaming about something won't make it come to fruition. But if you dream about it and you work hard at the same time, you can actually bring that into reality. And I think that's what he did. He worked hard, you know, he, he was prolific in terms of churning out music. He was prolific in doing shows. He was prolific on the social media hustle. And so that, coupled with a strong sense of self-belief and a strong sense of ambition, I think turned some of those dreams into reality. So um, he, I think he, he found the secret. He was very much into the secret. He, he really believed in all that stuff. And, I mean, he used to live, you know, under his parents' house, right, like where the garage is and shit. And to see Six go from, like, next to nothing not that he was you know povo but he he didn't have a job right like Mm. he was going to be a rapper that was it what do i need a job for you know what i mean like that's some gangster fucking confidence in yourself bro i got heavily into the law of attraction and stuff i still am i still am but i think a lot of people um misunderstand it and think that it's like if you visualize it and believe it can happen you can have it which is sort of what it is but you have to work for it. You have to, like, know when to to, to take ideas on and 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 go the route you want to go. So for me, it was like we were, like when Pez and I were working towards you know our careers before everything popped off. We would just like sit there and imagine like playing massive festivals, and we'd both sit there and feel like we were actually there. It was really really crazy, and um. The, the goals that I'd written down, there were so many really specific ones. I don't remember the specifics now, but I do remember it was stuff like play this festival um, on New Year's Eve, play, uh, earn over this much money in a year, um, have uh, this amount of songs go gold or something and have the album go gold and it was all stuff like that. And everything that I wrote down I ticked off but greatly, vastly you know, went past everything I expected. It was, it was, yeah, it was a wild, wild experience. And it's funny because even since then, I haven't taken the whole law of attraction approach that seriously. Um, I still do visualize stuff, but I haven't done it like I used to when we were doing falling, flying it, but it was, it was like, I'd go to bed every night, all these things that I was envisioning 
and would sit there. It was like meditating for an hour or two every night, envisioning what you want to happen and then working towards making that happen. Like, bust, you got to bust your ass and shit. It's not magic or anything. It's something where you've just... If you, if you believe in yourself high enough, I think the universe presents you with opportunities that you can take, like um, it opens doors, and you've, but you've got to walk through it. You can't just think it's going to come through the door, you know. It's, it's very, very, I think it's real. We've heard that 360 was a prodigious talent. He had a technical rapping ability that rivaled anyone at the time. He won battles and he crushed it on mixtapes. But that doesn't make anyone a star. We've heard that he stood out among his peers as someone with genuine X-Factor, the charisma to take it to a bigger platform. But now, dipping into the secret, Eckhart Tolle, the law of attraction, was starting to see what it was that really drove 360 to stardom. I'm not about to say that all you need to do is read a book and all your dreams will come true. That's not where we're going with all this. It was 60's determination and will to succeed that came out of all of this. During these interviews, when I would ask people where 360 was introduced to this method of thinking, everyone gave me the same answer. It was Pez. I was probably just innately that way. I don't know why I had this naive sort of belief that we could do it. So everyone else thinks that's ridiculous, but I think he started to believe me. So like it was... We more just stumbled across some dude that put that in our hand. Like it was kind of aligning with, I think, what we were just instinctively doing anyway, which was you just tra- you just chase it with this full commitment but this feeling that you can do it, which I think that's half the battle. Like for most people just actually believing something's possible, you know, like most people look at it off in the distance. It's like, oh, that's someone else can do that but not me. So they already placed those limitations on themselves. I just kind of had this feeling that we could do it. I was just sort of like that and I think he started to believe me, you know, that that we could and then, yeah, then at certain points like certain people put all that new age shit was sort of coming in so you kind of have people go, oh, this is like that or this is law of attraction and this is, you know, the power of now and all that stuff. So they're kind of different insights that maybe come along, along the way. But, yeah, I think we probably did have like a phase where we did start to feel like, you can, like you can just sort of figure out a way to manifest it and it's going to fucking happen sort of thing, even though, but it's never as rosy as that. Like I feel like there's lots of, like you're saying, like his commitment to it. 360 and Pez had forged a rock-solid friendship. Since the early days in the Victorian basketball system to quitting their jobs and risking it all on rap, these two dreamers had their heads in the clouds, which was exactly where they needed to be. Things took off not long later when Pez broke through out of nowhere with the festival song. Chris Farrar remembers the time fondly. The festival song took everyone by surprise. It was just such a, a massive hit. Um, it started popping up on Nova and, and Osterio stations, you know, when radio was everything. And we never even, you know, pitched it to them. We were an independent label at that point with independent distribution. Uh, We'd successfully pitched it to Triple J through the back door somehow and it started getting played. But then when it started popping up on commercial radio, it was just nuts. Um, The single eventually went gold, which is 35,000 copies sold in Australia, which was absolutely mind-blowing to us at the time. And I think, you know, having, having 360 and Pez together on the same track 
you know, with that beat, which was just uh, so, so catchy, with that hook that was just so catchy, um, the song just went nuts and we never anticipated it and we were very thankful when it happened. But, uh, yeah, the festival song was just a phenomenon. For Pez, the festival song proved that it wasn't just a pipe dream. And true to their ongoing friendship, Pez gave 60 a look on the hit track to share the moment. In the background, we were working on like this forthright. That's what we wanted to do. We wanted to kind of have this duo. The only reason we strayed from that was because in the background, before I'd met him, I was working on this solo like album with Matic in the background. And I was like, oh, I feel like I need to do this before we do our thing together. So even the reason for putting him on the festival song was just because I was like, man, it's going to be the single. So you got to be on it. Like we're going to fucking blow up and then we're going to do this album together. Like that's how we were thinking. The party didn't last long for Pez though. While the festival song climbed the charts, his health was failing him. Pez was diagnosed with Graves disease and had to step back to focus on his health. Seeing his close friend's sudden setback, only spurred 360 to go harder. And then I got the Graves disease thing and just fell apart. So I was like, I, I don't know if I'm going to do music. And he was like, fuck it. Like, I want, now that I've had a taste of that, like, I want it. So you sort of felt like he just went into overdrive almost. And it was like, yeah. But he'd, like, put the first album out and it didn't work and he tried to do the battles and, and it doesn't work. Like, he'd, he'd hit roadblocks, but the persistence, like, he's got more balls than anyone man like if you think about it like there's times when he's dealt with all these like haters all this bullshit but he's got like he's got this resilience that is almost like uncomparable like I don't I can't think of really anyone else that can be like that like in the face of like he just pushes through so there was this moment when it all started to click and you could feel you could feel the momentum you could feel it was happening before it was happening In the next episode, the heat around the festival song gets the attention of major labels and things quickly go into overdrive with 360's major debut. But as fast as things begin to move, the quicker they stop, as 360 is nearly killed in a shock accident. Three Sixties Falling and Flying is available now on all streaming platforms. Classic Material is a co-production of Acclaim Magazine and Complex AU. Written, researched, and narrated by Steve Duck from Complex AU. Edited by Posterboy Media. Executive producer Andrew Montel for Archetype Media.